This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the unholy mess that is our hackable, unverifiable election system. Clips today come from The Bradcast, Function, Gaslit Nation, and Strange Days. A new poll finds that a strong majority of Americans have concerns that the nation's voting systems might be vulnerable to hackers. Might be? That part of the survey's finding is roughly unchanged, however, from concerns over election security just before the 2016 presidential election. But there is a twist this year, as AP notes. Two years ago, it was Republicans who were more concerned about the integrity of the election. This year, it's Democrats, which, of course, underscores the point that I've been trying to make for so many years here on the Bradcast and at Bradblog.com that concerns about the security and ability to oversee election results by the public are not a partisan issue. But it also underscores what I've similarly argued over the years, that it won't be until a Republican really gets screwed by our corporate-owned, non-overseeable voting and tabulation systems that there will be any real change to the system. For example, do you think that if Republicans felt that a foreign country like Russia or any other might have manipulated our voting systems and our election results in 2016 to install Hillary Clinton as president— that there might have actually been some real changes to our electoral system? I do, but that's not the world that we live in right now. The survey released by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy and the Associated Press finds nearly 8 in 10 Americans say they are at least somewhat concerned about potential hacking. That is 80% of Americans. 80% of the electorate worries that our voting and tabulation systems may be vulnerable to hacking. And while there has been a lot of focus on the fear of foreign intrusion into our non-verified computer-tallied election results, computer security and voting systems experts will tell you that the vulnerability from insiders, such as election officials and voting system vendors and contractors, is at least as high, if not higher. Well, I guess I should take some comfort from the fact that now 80% of Americans at least get part of what we have been yelling and screaming and warning about here for about 15 years, being called a conspiracy theorist at times for even uh, raising the issue, and yes, often by many Democrats. So 80% of Americans now get it, at least in part, now that we uh, seem nowhere closer to actually doing what needs to be done about this problem. We're talking about voting machines. They are the technology that enables our votes to be counted and registered and in a lot of real ways, enables our voices to be heard. The wild thing about voting machines, though, is they are some broken-ass technology. They're old a lot of times. They don't run real well. The people running them don't always know how they're supposed to work. 
And even in the best case, they don't always have a paper audit trail to check whether a vote was actually counted. It's a mess. And then add in security concerns. The truth is a lot of voting machines, even new ones, are pretty easily hacked. And whether that's by the white hat hackers, the good guys who like to find security issues, or foreign interests that are trying to affect an election, a lot of folks know their way into these voting machines and can skew the results in ways we might not even be able to detect. And that's important context to know because there's a lot of hand-wringing, especially in right-wing media, about voter fraud. The truth is voter fraud statistically doesn't happen. What can happen, though, is election fraud or election tampering. You see, there's all the usual mechanisms of disenfranchisement where black and brown communities are targeted for everything from regular old voter suppression like hampering early voting, shutting down polling places, or even just spreading misinformation about voting access. And then on top of that, you add in really heavy burdens around voter ID and registration, and all these things add up to almost insurmountable barriers. But we make that even worse if voting machines themselves are faulty. There's nothing more basic in disenfranchisement than if your vote isn't counted. Like some of you, I'm old enough to remember the election of 2000. A big call to make, CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a state both campaigns desperately wanted to win. Stand by, uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the... The presidential election of Bush versus Gore. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. Where it all came down to that big recount in Florida. And voting machines played a central role in that entire drama. As Florida's elections for senator and governor remain unresolved, Governor Rick Scott has dropped his motion to impound voting machines in Broward County. The wild thing is, 18 years later, states are still having the same kinds of issues. We saw this in the midterms in the 2018 elections in Georgia and Florida. The vote count continues in Florida, always a key state in presidential elections, and this year the scene of tight races for governor and the Senate. Georgia's high-profile governor's race is still undecided. Republican Brian Kemp holds a narrow lead over Democrat Stacey Abrams. She told supporters overnight she will not concede. We cannot seize it until all voices are heard. And I promise you tonight we're going to make sure that every vote is counted. And let's take a closer look at that election in Georgia. Stacey Abrams challenging Brian Kemp in the race for governor of Georgia. Now, before Election Day, there were all kinds of classic disenfranchisement efforts, trying to keep voters away from the polls before the election even started. But you get to Election Day, and the voting machines come into the mix as one of the biggest barriers. There were reports of there not being enough voting machines in polling places, some voting machines not working, and even some machines that were registering votes for Kemp even though those voters had voted for Abrams. Georgia NAACP is filing a complaint about touchscreen voting machines in four counties. And according to this complaint, several voters say they tried to vote for Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams, but the machines instead chose Republican candidate Brian Kemp. The NAACP of Georgia filed a complaint against Brian Kemp because, you see, Kemp wasn't just a candidate for governor. He's also the secretary of state. That means he was the one overseeing the election and people were reporting irregularities with voting machines across the state of Georgia. In this case, when technology doesn't work, it's not just an annoying bug. It doesn't mean there's just something wrong with an app. When a voting machine technology doesn't work, it means somebody's voice isn't heard. Right? This is real human impact. 
The whole idea of democracy is that you have to be heard. But if we're depending on technology that isn't secure, can't be trusted, isn't reliable, then that entire promise is a lie. If you had a magic wand and all the money in the world, what would it look like to you? What are the steps we need to implement right now to have 100% peace of mind? I'm focusing uh, on voting machines right now. So what we need to do is, first of all, we need to have voting systems that produce where there are voter-marked paper ballots. Voter-mark is really critical. Typically, that would be like what we have in California, where you have a paper ballot and you take a, a pen and you... Uh, in this case, in the case of California, there's a bro- there are broken arrows between the you know next to the candidate names and the candidate you want. You just connect the two sides of the arrow, or you might fill in an oval like you know we used to do with the SAT tests. Uh, those are where the where this is done uh, manually by the voter. Voters with disabilities may not be able to do this, and so for them, there are devices called ballot marking devices, which look like some of these really bad machines, but in fact. Like they look like these old touchscreen machines, but in fact, what they do is they produce a paper ballot, which uh, where the selections have been made by the voter. So that's what I mean by voter marked paper ballots. And perhaps the critical distinction is that these ballots should not be counted in the same machine that creates them. So these ballot marking devices do not count the the, the ballots. The ballots are then uh, put it put into a separate machine, which is a scanner. We we basically need these standalone paper ballots. And we need to check on the scanners. Uh, the, 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 the machine, if the machines that mark the ballots also count the ballots, then, um, we have to worry about, uh, other, other technical issues there. So it's it just better to have, have the, um, have, have the counting be done by a separate system, which is what people are basically coming up with these days. I mean, the new systems are like this. So this is not, um, anything radical. Okay. So. This technology you're describing is already on the market. Yes, yes, it is. And and what we but what we need to do then is we have these scanners that are tabulating all of the paper ballots, both the ones that are marked manually by the voters and the ones that are produced by these ballot marking devices. But as I said earlier, these scanners are themselves computers. And as we know, computers can be hacked or they can just have ordinary software bugs. And we've seen examples of that in in, in past elections. Uh, or they need, they could be misprogrammed for the particular election. We have to tell, for each new election, we have to tell these scanners who the candidates are and where they're located on the ballot. And this, and this programming can be, there can be mistakes in this. And, and there's an example where the candidates' names were rotated on the ballot, but the scanner wasn't given that information. And so candidate A got the count, the count for candidate B, candidate B got the count for candidate C, and so on. And this this error was rectified because they were paper ballots that could be manually checked. So this kind of uh, totally innocent mistake can happen. Uh, so we have to be prepared both for innocent mistakes and for malevolent ones for efforts to rig elections. We need to be able to check these scanners, and we can do it. And, and if I can just add one more one more point, a lot of people say that if a voting machine, and that includes a scanner or a ballot marking device or an old fashioned touchscreen voting machine is not connected to the internet, it cannot be hacked. It cannot be attacked remotely. And that's just not true. And the reason that's not true is that the, the voting machines and the scanners all have to be programmed, as I said, with the candidate names and locations. And this programming is done on another computer. 
And this computer typically is attached, is, is attached to the internet at some point and it can be hacked. This, I don't know if you remember, but uh, some years back, uh, the Iranian centrifuges were brought down by a virus called the Stuxnet. They were caused, Iran had, the centrifuges started spinning out of control so that they self-destructed. And the reason that this happened is that this virus attacked the computers that were maintaining the centrifuges. So the centrifuges themselves were not connected to the internet, but the virus attacked the computers that were connected to the internet. And that's how they brought them down. Uh, there's also a video, a New York Times video that was made um, a couple months ago that shows Professor Alex Haldeman from the University of Michigan, who's also a Verified Voting's techno first technology fellow, shows him remotely hacking into the deep old paperless touchscreen voting machines that will be used in Georgia in the upcoming midterm and are used in some of the places as well. Um, if Alex Haldeman can remotely hack into these machines, so can uh, a nation state. So uh, these machines are just totally insecure and you cannot recount them. There's no paper ballot. One other thing I was curious about is you've been focused on this issue for a very long time, you know, like from what I was reading, at least back to 2002 in terms of uh, electronic machines. And you've, you know, dealt with this with a number of administrations. Do you feel that the Trump administration um, is notably different than prior ones in terms of their ability or willingness to tackle this issue? No, I don't. I mean, I mean, when Obama was president, I tried to get that administration to take it more seriously. And they didn't. Why were they reluctant to do so? I think people are reluctant to think that there could be a problem. I mean, I think there's a lot of reluctance. Um, I've actually had people come up to me. Uh, this has happened more than twice, actually. Uh, and, and say, and one person came up and apologized and said, I'm really sorry. I thought you were crazy. And now I think, now I see that you were right. And someone else came up to me and said, I want to shake your hand. We should have listened to you. There was, there was a lot of pushback. Yeah, we know that feeling. <laughs> right, Andrea? Sarah and I are making faces <laughs> at each other, like nodding our heads. That really. was our last two years. So uh, we definitely know what you're saying there. And um, yeah, I mean, and no one thinks it could happen here until it starts happening here. And that's part of the problem is because then they don't actually tackle the issue. And I mean, I'm just sort of curious because, you know, Andrea and I have raised this issue of election security for a very long time. And of course, after, not as long as you, not let's as long be, as you, but, um, you know, we've been very adamantly insisting since the last election uh, that, you know, this needs to be at the forefront of, you know, everything going forward that we don't, we can't wait till 2018. We need to tackle this immediately. And a criticism we've often received is that by even raising this issue, we are eroding social and political trust. We're attacking the integrity of the election system. And our philosophy is always, you know, you can't solve a problem until you're willing to admit that that problem exists. I was just curious if that's the kind of blowback uh, that you've received as well, where it's sort of perceived as antagonistic, whereas actually you're meaning to be helpful and informative. For over a decade, Yes. And um, not only that, uh, I'm not convinced that it's correct. Uh, Verified Voting sponsored a small uh, study uh, involving focus groups a, a few months ago. Unfortunately, we didn't ask that question, namely, you know, if you knew that the voting system was insecure, would you go in, or could be insecure, would you go and vote anyway? We didn't ask that question. But the person who ran the study said her impression from the answers that she did get to other questions was that that would not keep people from voting. So, you know, this this claim that by raising the issue, we will suppress voter turnout, which is something that I've heard, especially from Democrats, I might add, 
first of all, nobody's done a study. And, and the, the small study that we did suggests the opposite is true. And it's something, by the way, we would like to follow up on. We would like to know what, what the answer really is. I mean, even if, if it does suppress turnout, I think you still can't ignore it. But if it doesn't suppress turnout, then there's no justification for ignoring it. I think there's just too many issues already that are <laughs> that contribute to low voter turnout. You know, just general distrust of politicians, corruption, people not getting their needs met. And, and so I, I think this is actually a really exciting issue because it's modern, it's technology, and it's securing our country against our enemies, our very determined enemies. So I think I think this is something that there's a we've seen in our own uh people that we engage with on Twitter, we see a massive interest in this to the point where people get really emotional discussing it. So with if you could all talk to us about that in terms of where do you stand on whether the election results were hacked or not, whether the results themselves, whether some Russian hacker somewhere or some North Korean hacker somewhere got lucky and called to his superior and said, hey, I managed to get in, in this one county in the middle of nowhere, in this random state. What, what are your thoughts there on, on the results themselves being hacked, which is a very controversial issue that some people just really lose their minds over? I'd actually rather not focus on that, primarily because if one says that the Russians hacked the election in 2016, then... That's a way of turning off a lot of Republicans who say, well, then you're, you're, you're saying that Trump wasn't legitimately elected. And at this point, I think we need to, fo- to move forward and focus on the future. We need to focus especially on the 2020 election. So what we do know is that, um, that a couple of the voter registration databases were broken into. We do know that Russia was poking around uh, a number of the databases and for all we know, the voting machine systems. Uh, and, and when probing like that happens, even if they didn't break in, and again, we don't know if they did or not in many cases, but even if they didn't, they could be setting themselves up to do it in the future. So we, we actually don't know what happened for sure in 2016 because there was no proper, um, forensic analysis done after the election. And of course, in some cases, you couldn't do a forensic analysis because they were paperless systems. Uh, so we don't know what happened. Um, I'd rather not focus on that. I'd rather focus on the fact that we know that um, even members of the Trump administration are saying that our country is under attack. And so we have to move forward and put in the necessary protections so that our elections are secure in the future. I think that's what we need to put all our energy into. And and the last thing I want to do is to lose any potential allies by making accusations where, you know, I just don't have any proof one way or the other. I mean, that's one of the problems with these elections is, you know, you if you can't prove that the results are correct or incorrect, that's a really bad setup. I mean, that's basically uh, faith-based voting. And, and it's, you know, it's time to not have any more faith-based voting in this country. We have to have elections that are evidence-based, where we can prove beyond any doubt to the losers and the loser supporters that they truly lost. And in order to do that, we need paper ballots, and we need to check the machines that count those paper ballots. And we can do this. We know how to do this. It's, this is not rocket science. There's no excuse for not doing it.
Today's episode is sponsored by Tavur. They're the beer crate delivery service that has fixed the problems with traditional beer of the month clubs. Though, most importantly to me, they only work with truly independent breweries, meaning that they have less than 25% ownership by a beverage alcohol industry member, which is not itself a craft brewer. Tavur believes that the best way to directly support the craft beer community as a whole is to only work with and promote the ferocious innovation that happens at small independent breweries. But besides the good they're doing for their industry, they're also doing well by their customers. Unlike other clubs, you can pick exactly which beer you want on the Tavur app with two new options daily, so none of those blind crates of whatever they feel like sending anymore. So if you're interested in discovering rare beers and supporting independent brewers, check out Tavur, that's T-A-V-O-U-R dot com, and in your favorite app store. Be sure to enter the code LEFT on the promos page of the app before your first beer purchase to receive a $10 credit after you spend $25. That's Tavur and promo code LEFT. The national media has finally at least begun to notice what we have been warning you about when it comes to these new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that many, including Democrats, by the way, insanely, are pushing for in a number of key voting jurisdictions across the country in advance of the 2020 presidential race. So this is not necessarily anything new here, I suppose, if you're a regular listener to the Bradcast or reader of bradblog.com, where I have been yelling and screaming about these so-called computer ballot marking devices for at least 10 years Ever since the Democratic congressman at the time, and ironically enough, an actual rocket scientist, uh, Congressman Rush Holt of New Jersey, told me directly that he would like every voter in the U.S. to vote on BMD systems. Those are computer-marked systems. They can't be verified by human beings after an election. And I had explained that to the congressman over and over at the time that they would be 100 percent unverifiable and, um, you know, something that I, I couldn't even get the incredibly conservative cybersecurity and voting systems experts to admit it at the time. But happily, they pretty much all now do. So finally, the word is getting out, uh, but it may be too late in a bunch of parts of the country. As Politico's Eric uh, Geller picked up on this matter finally over the weekend, he writes, election officials in some states and cities are planning to replace their insecure voting machines with technology that is still vulnerable to hacking. Thank you, Mr. Geller. Uh, he notes the machines that Georgia, Delaware, Philadelphia, and perhaps many other jurisdictions will buy before 2020. Geller says, and uh, I don't agree with this part, but he says they are an improvement over the totally paperless devices that have generated controversy for more than 15 years. That, according to election security experts and voting integrity advocates. But those folks warn that these new machines still pose unacceptable risks in an election that U.S. intelligence officials expect to be a prime target for disruption by countries such as Russia and China. All right. So in that paragraph from uh, Mr. Geller there, uh, he doesn't mention either there or in the rest of the article 
which I should note is mostly good, but, you know, maybe I've lowered the bar considerably as I've waited for anyone in the national media to notice any of this at all. Nowhere in in the article does Geller note that Los Angeles County, my own county here and uh, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, has already decided to move to these unverifiable systems before the 2020 election. He also uh, does not note that the systems are not only easily targeted by foreign hackers, but also from both domestic hackers and far easier by election insider election officials and contractors who will be able to flip an election with these brand new systems with almost zero possibility of ever being discovered. So, yes, this is insane, and it's why I have been trying to warn about this for so long after also spending those same past 15 years warning about the existing wildly hackable and easily manipulated systems that nobody ever bothered to check even after the incredibly close 2016 presidential election. You know, the one with the surprise ending. No one ever bothered to check those machines to see if they had been manipulated, and many of those were hand-marked paper ballot systems. Now, the new machines, Geller explains, just like the ones they're replacing in Georgia and Delaware and Philadelphia, allow voters to use a touchscreen to select their choices and print out a slip of paper with the vote displayed in plain text and embedded in a barcode a hard copy that, in theory, Geller writes, would make it harder for hackers to silently manipulate the results. Well, in theory, in theory, yeah, harder, uh, maybe slightly, but not much, if any. Uh, security experts warn that hackers could still manipulate the barcodes that are printed without voters noticing, since it's the barcodes that are counted by the system not anything that is human readable that is printed on these paper ballot summary card printouts. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine has also warned against trusting these barcode based devices, saying they, quote, raise security and verifiability concerns. Yet that hasn't stopped some states from forging ahead, however, as they face pressure to retire their outdated paperless machines before the next presidential race. Uh, Geller uh, reports that the replacements are known as ballot marking devices or BMDs and uh, quotes Alex Halderman, a voting security expert who teaches at the University of Michigan, who has been on the show several times over the years, beginning years ago. Holderman says it's concerning that jurisdictions are rushing to purchase them before even basic questions have been answered. Many states have adopted what experts call a much more secure option. That would be paper ballots that voters mark by hand with a pen that are then scanned and tallied. But election officials in Georgia, Delaware and Philadelphia have rejected that option so far in favor of the barcode devices, saying they are secure enough and better suited for many voters with disabilities. And and, and I must note, uh, those of us who oppose these systems oppose their use for all voters. We don't oppose them uh, for for voters with disabilities who may need to use a device like this. Uh, to be able to vote uh, privately and independently. But there is zero reason to force all voters to use them. And yet that is what is happening in Philadelphia, in Georgia, here in Los Angeles, in Delaware. 
Last week, uh, Georgia lawmakers in the State House of Representatives advanced a bill to approve the barcode devices in a 101 to 72 vote along party lines. Democrats tended to agree with the experts, the facts, those experts who have said that the machines are too vulnerable. The Georgia Senate held a, uh, a hearing on the bill today in a subcommittee on the bill HB 316. We'll be joined by Marilyn Marks shortly to find out how that went. Democratic Georgia State Rep Jasmine Clark told Politico, right now, we do not have the ability to conduct to conduct elections safely and securely and be able to correctly audit them. When it comes to people being able to make sure their vote is counted, she says paper is the way to go. She should have added hand marked paper because there's a lot of folks out there who are citing these systems as saying, look, they're paper, paper ballots. No, they're not. Republicans largely hailed the technology, Geller reports. A Republican state Congress uh, uh, state rep Barry Fleming said after the vote in the House last week, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, we can put our voters first in Georgia and bring us into the 21st century with these new systems. In January, a commission created by the former Republican vote-suppressing Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who is now the governor, recommended replacing the previous paperless, unverifiable touchscreen systems with these new barcode devices. Election security experts had urged the committee, however, to instead recommend a hand-marked paper ballot system. States, cities, and counties switching to new technology Geller writes, will probably have to live with their choices for years to come, given the expense and difficulty of changing systems. While election security advocates have suggested precincts use paper-based systems for most voters and a few ballot-marking devices with barcodes for people with disabilities, disability rights advocates say that setting aside special machines for them amounts to a discriminatory system. And here is where I, yes, am forced to go against some of these disability rights advocates. And just I, to point out, yeah. these are only some of these yeah. rights, ad, not I, all of them. I have spoken to many of them over the years, and, and many do not agree with this assertion that everybody must vote on these devices simply because some disabled disabled voters choose to do so. I've tried to argue for years that, you know, just because we install a ramp or an elevator at City Hall, we don't get rid of the stairs that most people use. This argument from disabilities advocates uh, to force everybody to use unverifiable touchscreen systems is insane. It's illogical. If the systems are so fantastic, then they should be glad that they're getting a special system set aside for well, them rather than making everybody work on this, you know, substandard system that they seem to perceive. Duncan Buell, uh, the uh, computer scientist and, and voting system expert at University of South Carolina, says these barcode systems, quote, make a mockery of the notion that the ballot is voter verifiable. Matt Blaze, a computer science and law professor at Georgetown University, said it basically turns the system into one that has all of the well-known problems that paperless voting machines have. You have to trust the software that's being used to cast the vote. He says this bad ballot marking technology is a really unfortunate development, and it's one that I'm hopeful will not proliferate. Well, it would have been nice if Blaze had made those comments about 10 years ago when I was begging those 
computer scientists like Matt Blaze and others to speak out about uh, these systems because now they, yes, are already proliferating and it may be too late to stop them. Blaze said he was puzzled as to why companies even made ballot marking devices that relied on barcodes. Well, you know, they make a lot more money if they can sell 10 or 20 machines per precinct rather than one single scanner per precinct that can scan everyone's hand-marked paper ballots. Blaze noted the consensus of experts has been pretty clear and pretty unanimous here. The best voting technology that's available is hand-marked paper ballots, augmented where needed with human-readable ballot marking technology. In a statement to Politico, ESNS, which is the nation's largest voting machine vendor and the supplier of most of these machines around the country, called their new systems, quote, thoroughly tested and proven. No, they are not. They said the same thing back when they made billions hoaxing the nation into buying their crappy paperless touchscreens after the Help America Vote Act back in 2002 authorized the systems used in still in Georgia today for billion dollars went out to the nation to buy some of these uh, systems that were not thoroughly tested and proven and have proven since to be wildly untested and hackable and prone to simple failure. Rich DeMillo, a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology, also a guest on this show, not long ago said he worried that Georgia's and Philadelphia's ballot marking devices will be a step backward from their current notoriously insecure and unmanageable systems. In addition, Politico notes research by DeMillo and Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance and Georgia's uh, Georgia Tech's Robert Cadell has called into question the basic notion that ballot marking devices are secure based on the premise that voters will carefully review their computer-printed paper records somehow. Of course, we as voters can never know if they did that after an election. We can never know if anyone bothered to review those paper printouts or if they did, if they noticed any errors or problems with them. And I speak to this personally back in 2008 in the primary election out here in California, in Los Angeles. I used one of these systems to test to see how they worked. And four out of 12 of my votes in that primary were misprinted by the computer system, a system that is made uh, in many cases for blind voters uh, who would have never seen that the uh, system had misprinted their ballots. This study from DeMillo and Marx and uh, Cadell was uh, after talking to voters during the 2018 Tennessee primaries. Uh, we reported on that study uh, a few months back, uh, but Geller notes that the researchers there concluded that voters are disinclined to review paper trails printed uh, by the computers and that even when attempting to verify ballots, voters cannot accurately recall all of the prior choices and the full ballot contents, even if those choices were made only moments before.
You know, it's incredible because one of the things that you see, and I think there were examples of this in the run-up even to the 2018 midterms, they would do these little displays where these young hackers would show how easily compromised it was to get into some of these electoral databases and and the very uh, electoral divisions and the machinery where they were the tabulation of votes. Yet people kind of looked at it with some concern. Everything kind of moved on and normalized. Are, Are you suggesting, Jennifer, that all of the electoral equipment that is done through either machines or through computerized data all of it is subject to tampering possibly in hacking well election security cyber experts the scientists all say that's the case yes i don't think that's disputed actually what what the election security cyber experts and again i'm talking about the scientists have been saying is that the if we're going to use electronics, the only way to secure them is to use hand-marked paper ballots. They didn't used to add the hand-marked part on to my chagrin. They've recently started adding that. I'll explain why. But we need to have manual post-election manual audits of hand-marked paper ballots in order to secure electronic voting equipment. So it's really a security after the fact. I'm trying to catch any fraud that might have occurred as opposed to preventing it. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, we, we heard the constant drumbeat that says, and that to me, it makes sense. It's part of the reason I want to have this conversation that we should just go to a, a standardized paper ballot system where you tabulate, you're able to kind of physically look at what the actual intent of the voters are. Yet there doesn't seem to be any kind of a national call for this. Why do you think that is? Why is there so much tacit, silent consent? for a system that you and all of the election experts you say is, is so subject to compromising with an electronic voting system? Um, I, I think there, there are many factors. One is people maybe assume that somebody in government is, is um, guarding the hen house. So there is an election assistance commission, and I think people assume that since we have that, they would let us know if there was a problem. But what they don't realize is that the Election Assistance Commission does not require that voting systems be secure. They don't even look at that. They look just to see if they perform as they're supposed to perform under normal circumstances. And not only that, their guidelines are voluntary, and two of the four commissioners are notorious vote suppressors, one of whom got his job with the help of Chris Kobach on the EAC. So I think there are assumptions that that somehow our elections system and, and the agencies tasked with guarding it have not been corrupted, even though most of our other government agencies, as we've seen, have been corrupted. And another reason why I think people don't realize this is that the corruption is so deep, and it, it comes largely from the voting machine vendors themselves, who are trying, they have a profit motive to sell the most expensive, elaborate equipment possible because it costs three times as much. And that's assuming they're not selling it because they want to help people cheat. But just even just on a profit profit basis, they're pushing these really expensive systems. And what they do is there's there's this whole language that's arisen around elections because of the vendors that has helped them sell these systems and and has misleadingly suggested these systems are secure when they're not. So the most recent example is when a few years ago, experts started calling for paper ballots, like you just mentioned. Um, the idea was really, at the time, hand-marked paper ballots that you mark with a pen. And what the vendors did is they saw that trend, so they came up with a new type of touchscreen machine called a ballot-marking device that will have a machine mark. It puts a machine between you and your ballot, and the machine marks this paper printout for you. And they called these paper printouts paper ballots. 
that wasn't really what everyone had in mind to begin with um, when they said that we needed to get away from, you know, we needed to scale down the electronics and move to paper ballots. They, they had in mind the kind marked with a pen. But for whatever reason, a lot of the even election integrity organizations have fallen for it, I guess, or enabled it or helped with it because they all were calling these things and still are calling them paper ballots. And now I have to call them that too, because otherwise, if I say, watch out for the paper printouts, people will respond and say, yay, paper ballots. And they don't understand these paper printouts are what they're calling. These machine marked printouts are what they're calling paper ballots now. So you you have to specify hand marking. And so there's just this whole really confusing language out there that it's false and misleading advertising, but that's what it is. And even election integrity groups have fallen for it. And um, I think all of this is sort of compounded to let it happen. And it's happening now. People are buying really dangerous systems. On that very point, I mean, one of the things I'm curious about, because I haven't spent the time that you have studying this, but do you suspect that we have gotten to this point where we have, in essence, abdicated the use of the traditional paper and pen paper ballots where we could physically mark and understand what the clear intention of the voters were. Have we abdicated that in the name of convenience uh, for these electric systems that can then be monetized and, and, and computerized? Or do you suspect, Jennifer, that there is either a bad faith or sinister intent that was a- actively pushing for this easily manipulatable and, uh, and, and computerized processes that are open itself up to tampering and tinkering? Well, I, I try to, to stay away from speculating as to people's intent. I just try to look at the facts. So I can't, I can't say that people are acting in bad faith or not acting in bad faith. Um, I leave that up to others. But if you if you wanted to hack elections, this is the type of equipment you would create. I can say that. So let me ask you this. this. Is there a place in the United States that today you believe has either the gold standard or the best practice of how an election should be conduct, conducted with the physical processes of the voters casting ballots? Probably, from my perspective, the best is New Hampshire, um, and maybe I think there are some counties in New York where they not only hand mark the paper ballots, but they publicly hand count them on election night. So um, the next best, that, that is the gold standard. There are some who say, or actually many who say, including some of the experts I respect, that our ballots are too complex in most of our jurisdictions to allow hand counting, even though they still say we should do hand marking. So um, the second choice would be to do still hand marked ballots plus scanners. And then um, you do, you conduct robust post-election manual audits. And the the key there, that all sounds fine, fine and dandy. The real problem I have with that, well, there's a couple, but one of the main ones is that you have to have a transparent and secure chain of custody between election night and the manual audit or the manual audit doesn't mean anything. And um, so that's why I prefer the the hand counting on election night. The other problem with the manual audit is with these so these new systems in particular that people ha- are buying. So they're, they're called hybrid ballot marking devices. And um, America's two most popular, most two largest vendors are selling them. And they sold them to quite a few counties in quite a few jurisdictions already. They haven't been used much yet. They may have only been used even in one election so far. 
But what they do is they they call them paper ballot systems, but these are those machine-marked ballots. It's a scanner and a ballot marker combined into one machine. And what they do is they run the paper ballot, the so-called paper ballot, under the printhead after the voter has inspected and cast it in the machine. And by doing that, that would enable the machines to be programmed by corrupt insiders or hacked by corrupt outsiders to add votes to your ballot after you have cast it. They would probably, it's, it's mostly a concern for undervotes, so that would be votes that voters leave, leave blank. But there are a lot of undervotes in elections, a lot, certainly enough to sway an election, and so uh, more than enough. And these new hybrid machines would allow would allow them it would allow bad actors to fill in those undervotes for the candidates of their choice and this is not something that a manual audit could detect so the big mantra we have been hearing from the, the largest election security organizations even in the country is not to worry so much about 2020 as long as we conduct robust manual audits or can do robust well really audits the manual recounts are a different story um, because they only apply usually if the candidates are within like a half a percent. But they've been putting all their eggs in the manual audit basket. And it turns out that the machines that they've been helping uh, the vendors sell by calling them paper ballot systems make the manual audits meaningless because the because they can add votes after the voters have inspected the paper ballots. So we're really in a bad situation. And yeah, the EAC is not going to fix it for us. It's really got to come. It's really got to come from grassroots and um, public exposure and demand from the public, public outrage. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. So let's get into sort of where we're at today. If we take let's take Georgia, right? There's there's so much going on, um, you know, around you know various you know, efforts around voter suppression, all these things. So it's a very very fraught environment, and they have got what sounds like the worst machines in place already. Um, 
Talk me through what are, what are some of the shortcomings and the problems about what's there today? Um, there's there's a lot. If, if people are particularly interested, I've actually written an article um, going into very you know fine detail about this. But um, Georgia, right, we'll show we'll show that out in the show notes. But give me give me the the, the greatest hits or the, the greatest misses of, of of what's bad here. So Georgia's a weird state in that they are, as far as I know, the only state that is entirely centralized. That you know the state of Georgia runs elections. Um, in most states, you know, Texas, where I'm originally from, every county is responsible for their elections in Michigan and Wisconsin and a couple of other places. It's even down to the township, you know, city level. That is good and bad both, right? There are efficiencies to be made when you can consist, you know, have consistency across your state. Um, but also it creates a huge vulnerability. If, if something goes wrong at the Secretary of State's office, it affects every voter in Georgia. You know, they're using these AccuVote uh, TS machines that are my advisor, when he was in grad school, broke the AccuVote TS machine, and you know, a decade ago, and and this is still being used. Um, they haven't really been updated, and we have numerous problems that have been reported. You know, poll tapes that don't make any sense, voters who say that they got the wrong ballot. Um, there, there's all kinds of like weird things that have been going on there, and there's no way for and serious problems. Yeah, serious not, problems. Not, not, right. not like a little display problem, like a real exactly. When it was my turn after waiting three hours, I had difficulties with casting my vote because the machine kept glitching and it was pausing and freezing. So then I asked, I asked someone to tell me what to do about it because my vote wasn't letting me cast, and they told me there was nothing that we could do about it. Or you know, people go in to the to the precinct to check in to vote and they're they're told that they're in the wrong precinct but the person who lives with them is in the right precinct right it just makes no sense and again it goes back to these sort of black box voting machines that no one can look at and you know they produce election uh, election night results instantaneously in most cases um but you know in the past few elections you know fulton county had major technical problems and they couldn't get results out it took you know there was like a three-hour delay there's all kinds of issues you know um the way that the Machines get programmed is a, you know, really appealing vector for malware. If you wanted to infect these machines, you know, you could sit on your couch in Russia and infect every voting machine in Georgia. And that actually raises a point. So let's not to hand wave away the complexity of this, but let's imagine that you could fix every bug in these machines. Like you, you sit down, you write all the software and you make all the updates. Is it like my iPhone? Can I just like download an update and all the voting machines are updated and now we're good? No. These voting machines are running on an operating system that came out in 1999 and hasn't been patched since, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. And, you know, to George's credit, for the most part, they aren't connected to the Internet. So you can't just download the patch. They do have some features where you could, you know, if you stick a memory card in it, you could update the you can flash the firmware and update the software. Again, going back to this sort of path of vulnerability. If I'm an attacker, I look at that and say, oh, great, I can convince them to try and plug my software into every one of their machines, right? You know, there's no real guarantee that what they're doing um, is correct. And, and again, like you could write the best software in the world. You could, you could have perfect security on these machines. But at the end of the day, it would still be impossible for a voter to know that their vote was counted correctly because there is no independent record. There's no way, there's nothing that anyone can look at and say, beyond the shadow of a doubt, yes, this is this is what this voter voted for. This is, you know, we can count all of these ballots independently and we can guarantee that the election result that was produced by these machines is correct. It's just not possible. So uh, now that we're sufficiently hopeless and we've seen, we've seen how dire the circumstance is, are there any places in America that have started to turn the corner on changing this? Yeah, so um, most places, actually. There, there is a lot of good news. Um, 
you know, we saw a widespread adoption of sort of DRE, uh, sorry, direct recorded electronic voting machines like these black boxes that, that are used in Georgia in most places in 2002, 2004. And since then, they've been slowly kind of the, the curtain of DRE has receded. Um, so, you know, 70 plus percent of U.S. votes are now cast with a with a independent paper record in, you know, unfortunately, we don't actually look at those paper records in a way in most places that that can tell you, you know, useful things about the election. But there are a few states that do. Um, Colorado, this election cycle is is rolling out a statewide risk limiting audit. Uh, and a risk limiting audit is just a statistical way to check. You can count a handful of ballots and basically ensure that your um, that the result reported by the voting machines is correct. Um, so Colorado is doing this. Rhode Island is doing this. I think California just passed uh, a resolution to do this. I don't know if it's this year or next. Um, Michigan is is experimenting with some different audit techniques. There are lots of states that are doing this. Um, so you know, there's, so California is not still DRE. I think there are a couple of counties that have DREs with paper trails, um, which are not ideal, but they're at least a little better than paperless. But in most counties in California, it's either vote by mail or or optical scan, handmarked right. paper ballot. A lot more people seem to be aware of the risks and dangers around our current, you know, voting infrastructure. And and there's at least a casual awareness, even if they don't know the sort of the technical considerations. And we now have some you know, proof points to be able to look at and say, well, we can get better. We can make something that is more trustworthy and it's not science fiction. It's something that's happening in reality. We have vendors that are uh, incentivized both from the fairness and, and, and the sort of civil justifications of it and also because they can probably have a business opportunity that they want to do the right thing here. If I'm a voter in the 95% of uh, American jurisdictions that doesn't have you know, a system that runs as well as it should, what are the steps I can take? Are there resources I should be looking at? That's like, this is, this is what to tell my elected officials. Are there groups I can join with to, or, to organize around saying, I would like to fix this issue? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there are lots of, you know, audit the vote kind of groups out there. As far as the individual is concerned, you know, find who runs your elections, find, you know, whether it's a township clerk, a county clerk, and go talk to them, you know, ask them, you know, what is your system like? What can it do? What would it take for us to do secure audits? Go talk to your state legislator make sure that they are aware of the issue because, you know, the state legislatures are the ones who, who actually can pass the laws that matter. You can also call your Congress people, um, in, in federal, you know, U.S. Congress. They passed a $380 million, uh, basically, a supplemental package to Hava this year that is released. You know, every state now has something like ten million dollars plus to update their voting equipment with a with an emphasis on audits. There are a couple of um, bills in in Congress, the Secure Elections Act, which I think might be tabled or dead, but there's always a successor to that 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 also promotes the use of better standards, better auditing practices. Um, so th- so there's that. And at the end of the day, if you, you know, if you're just coming up against a brick wall for all of this, you know, encourage candidates to run on a platform of election transparency, right? Like that's the one of the things that's going to help um, move us forward is electing people that, you know, rewarding people for, for having that stance and, and getting them elected. Of course, you know, most candidates, once they get elected, they look at the voting system and say, well, it elected me. So how bad can it be? Um, but hopefully if we get, you know, more commitments on transparency and auditability, that'll help. And then also, you know, the other thing that I, that I should add is there are some sort of, I don't know if I should call them extreme, but 
um, last ditch efforts that can be made. So, you know, the recounts in 2016 were an example of this taking a, you know, whatever existing policy and legal infrastructure that there is and pushing it to the limit to make sure that we can actually look at paper ballots and make sure that our votes are counted correctly. Ballots are public record. Um, You can submit a Freedom of Information Act request to your township or county clerk um, and look at the ballots if you want. Um, It'll cost you a little bit of money, but, um, you know, in the absolute worst case scenario, um, it's also a viable option for making sure that your vote was counted. We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast explaining why election security isn't a partisan issue, even though it always feels like it is. Function went over the history of voting reforms, going back to the 2000 hanging Chad fiasco that ultimately led us to where we are. Gaslit Nation talked with election expert Barbara Simons about methods of securing our elections. The broadcast got excited about how the national media is finally talking about voting machine vulnerabilities only about 15 years later than they should have. Strange Days discussed the hurdles we face to just getting to the point that we could admit we have a problem. And finally, we just heard Function describing several things you can do to demand we begin to fix our election system. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a few additional thoughts on the need for an election system that doesn't require trust in any individual people, and a few extra stories and uh, interesting things I've learned recently that uh, that I'm sharing on the bonus show. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, you can still support our work and get the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend to help guide the course of the show. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, my name is John, and I'm in... uh northeast maryland i'm actually a a republican borderline (laughs) independent all based on uh, how the current state of politics in our in our nation are but uh i've i wanted to comment on uh or give you my opinion as to what i think about the future podcast uh with respect to the election and the, the white guy is getting the attention that they are getting. First off, I want to say that I really appreciate um, your points of view and the points of view that you present on your podcast because I am a conservative. Conservative, I am a Republican, but I, I always uh, myself try to hear different sides of the story or at least flip the coin over and see what's underneath because I don't think it's wise to stay within the conservative echo chamber as well i don't think it wise for a liberal or someone who uh, is is of the left to reside solely inside of their echo chamber so i think we are getting close to the election i i think we're spending 
too much time focusing on the candidates and who they are and not spending enough time talking about and debating the policies that they've put forward or potential policies rather. And I don't think that it's, it bodes well for us to not examine those things from a realistic point of view from a, how does this affect me directly point of view or how does this affect certain groups point of view. Uh, I don't think we're doing ourselves justice at all because we have been focused and this is both sides uh, rather all three sides independents, conservatives and liberals have all been inundated with post-election nonsense. The election's over. Hillary didn't win. Bernie was gypped out of becoming the nominee because of some DNC craziness. And we've got Donald Trump. I don't entirely agree with Donald Trump as our president and the things that he has done prior to and, and, and after the election. But he's our president. I'm a conservative and it matters to me what he does. But what doesn't matter to me is what is going to happen in 2020. We need to get a little bit closer. We need to we need to hear our candidates speak up and actually give us something to vote on. The Democrats have not hardly pumped anything out of the House. The Republicans have not hardly pumped anything out of the Senate. It's all been focused on post-2016 election. So if we can get away from the identity stuff and get on top of infrastructure get on top of the budget if we could pass a budget if we could elect somebody who can get a budget through i mean i don't care what party they come from that's a win any anyhow so i am running long but i and i, I recognize that you can only listen to so much but i do appreciate you hearing me out now i do again appreciate your podcast and your points of view i'm looking forward to the next episode and your next series of podcasts. Uh, Have a great one. Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philly. And I don't think I've ever called in specifically to disagree with a segment of the show before, but this is in reference to episode 1270, Surveillance Capitalism, uh, and specifically one of the segments from Ralph Nader, where he's talking about Social Security moving towards electronic direct deposit rather than paper checks. And what I thought was a strange comment from him is where he said, oh, it's forcing people to join banks and credit unions. And the credit union thing was what stood out to me. Maybe it was just, you know, sort of a slip. Maybe wasn't something he thought through all the way. But, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, one of the big sub-movements of Occupy Wall Street was, you know, did your bank join a credit union? And I happen to be a happy credit union member here in Philly, and it seems to me like it's exactly the kind of institution that uh, Nader would appreciate. You know, it's, you know, member-owned, democratically controlled. I get to vote for the leadership of the credit union, locally based. You know, it's not a a national or, or global corporation. And to join it, I literally have to keep $5 in a savings account and nothing else. There's no other fee 
to hold any other accounts there whatsoever. I can have zero dollars in my checking account and they won't charge me for it. So it just seemed a little strange that he was against credit unions, especially as opposed to mailing people a check. I don't know the last time he tried to cash a check without having a bank account, but check cashing stores, which of course are also usually payday lenders, aren't exactly known for their low fees and generous policies towards customers. So I'm not really sure how mailing a check to somebody is a benefit over a direct deposit. And then I also don't understand how it reduces the effect of surveillance capitalism. I don't know. It just didn't feel like that was a particularly well-argued point. Uh, Another thing, this came from the bonus show where he was talking about the problems or the dangers of augmented reality and then proceeded to give a great description of virtual reality. And I don't think this is a distinction without a difference. I think this is actually important to get right because whatever the problems of virtual reality may be, that it's isolating, that it doesn't encourage people to go out and experience the real world, that's all fine and good. But the real dangers of augmented reality are already pretty apparent, I think. There's an incredibly popular game out there that I won't buzz market, but I will say involves going around to catch uh, pocket-sized monsters. And I think most people will know what I'm referring to. That actually does encourage people to go outside and, and get together and, and do challenges with friends. And, and a lot of people are, are into it, and you know they'll get together in groups, and they'll you know swap things with their friends in the game. Uh, but it also requires you to, A, you know, take part in a branded um, bit of entertainment, which, you know, the, can definitely have opinions about that. It also requires the use of a cell phone with GPS tracking. If you want to talk about surveillance, you know, in order to participate in this game, you literally have to report your location back to their servers at all times. And I don't know if there's anything you would pay for in the game you know, to buy power-ups or something. I, I don't I don't play the game myself. I don't know any of those mechanisms. But, you know, you literally have to agree to surveillance to play this game and, and report your location at all times. And that's the thing that needs to be argued about in that regard, not to mention, you know, sort of the, the minority report aspects that were brought up in other segments. You know, something like the Google Glasses that, came around and failed a few years ago were to ever really take off you know the, the possibility of you know, literally any empty space that you look at becoming an advertisement you know or just advertisements popping up at random throughout your day you know you're you're at your local farmers market and you're you know seeing somebody's homemade kombucha or something and of course you get an ad for coca-cola you know in your eyes hey why not have a coke instead and that's that's the kind of stuff that augmented reality is going to bring that i think we really need to focus on and so i think it does matter to be more precise in that regard and not confuse two different technologies Uh, hope my pedantry isn't overboard Uh, thanks for everything you do with the show jay and stay awesome
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick response to uh, John, the conservative from Maryland. Uh, Thanks for calling in. We don't get that many calls from conservatives every once in a while, and they're almost always reasonable people who I feel like I'd want to have a chat with and and just don't get uh, that many opportunities. We, We used to have a regular conservative caller who would call in all the time, Wade, but I think that was because he was a long-haul truck driver. I mean, I know he was a long-haul truck driver. And I think what happened is he got himself an office job. So I think he used to listen to the show all the time and doesn't anymore. So he, he went from being our, our regular uh, conservative who could weigh in on all the stuff we've been talking about. And and, and we ended up having interesting conversations. So I've, I've always wished that more conservative would, would, would call in. So thanks to John and, of course, any other conservatives who want to call in. You're more than welcome. Uh, and then uh, Aaron, who called in talking about Ralph Nader. I, I got to say, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with Aaron on, on her complaints. Ralph Nader is a really interesting dude. He's done a lot of good things in his life. He has a lot of good positions. And he gets so like on, on the privacy uh, with with banks and all that. He made the decision a long time ago to just not go down that road. So he will often talk about how he doesn't use credit cards. He doesn't, I don't, I don't know what he does for banking services. Um, but he, he talks about how, you know, he uses cash whenever he can. So he's, he's opposed to being forced into those sort of things. My interpretation, as Aaron was saying, like, seems like he'd sort of be in favor of credit unions. And he is. I mean, he's, he talked on the show about how he's in favor of those, like, state-owned banks that give loans and, and you know, manage the um, the retirement funds of state workers, all that sort of thing. So he's not like – he doesn't think everyone should keep their cash under, under the mattress. I do sort of think, as, as Aaron said, he might have just gotten carried away when he was talking about getting forced into uh, these sort of services by companies who will refuse to take cash, basically. Technology in general, though, like, he is not on the same planet as as most people. He He's made a decision that maybe a lot of people, I mean, very few people actually think to themselves, I wish I could not use any technology. Usually they think, like, I wish I could use it more thoughtfully. I wish I could use it less. Ralph went all the way. He like doesn't use technology. (laughs) So his perspective is definitely a bit twisted. And it doesn't mean that he's coming to a lot of really wrong conclusions. He just comes from such a different angle that it's absolutely understandable why he's going to misstep every once in a while and, you know, be talking about virtual reality or or vice versa, talk about uh, augmented but describe virtual. Like, he's not going to necessarily get, get that distinction. It's sort of the implicit question is, so why was he saying all that stuff on the show? And and the thing is, you know, they interview interesting people. It's, it's rare that uh, if, if someone says something that I don't like or agree with, it's usually pretty easy to just 
cut it out and just not have that be on the show. In this instance, Ralph, like Ralph's interview style, because he's Ralph Nader and he has a lot of opinions he wants to share, his interview style is to say a lot of things he believes and then flip it real quick and say, now, what do you think about that? So that's kind of what was happening. And in order to get the interviewee's perspective, which I thought was a lot more thoughtful or reasoned or, or accurate or whatever, it sort of needed the context of the question in order to fully or, or more fully understand the answer. So I, I left the question in, even though Ralph was like going on a bit. So yeah, as, as I said, I'm, I'm with Aaron on, on her concerns about like, Hey, wh- why you dissing <laughs> credit unions? And, uh, and if you're going to talk about technology, like at least try to be accurate, I'm totally on board. I guess I, I have a soft spot in, in, in my heart for Ralph and I give him a little, uh, leeway to, to talk about these things and, and, you know, not, not be exactly accurate because he's, he's operating on a completely different wavelength than the rest of us. It's an interesting line. He tries to walk. I, I can't remember if it was in the show or if it was, it was, if I just heard it as part of my research, but you know, Ralph was talking about how he, you know, he like doesn't use a computer or email but he's got a staff of people who do. So like he he talks this game like he exists outside of our technologically driven world, but he doesn't really because he just has people who do it for him. Yeah, you know, so the person he was interviewing responded to him saying like, "Yeah, you know, okay, like you don't use email, but somebody emailed me from your office to ask me to come on the show." So like Email is being used in the Ralph Nader universe, just not by him personally. So of all the topics that he talks about, technology, cell phone usage, all those sorts of things are, uh, I, I guess I just take it with a, you know, chunk of salt because it's, it's not that he's right or wrong about his opinions. He's just, he's just coming at it from a, a entirely different world than we do. If you have thoughts on that or anything else, of course, you can keep the comments coming at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. 